Merry Christmas. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is an absolute joy uh, to be with you. If you're visiting from out of town, I know we see lots of folks around, family and friends from out of town. We are absolutely delighted uh, that you're here. I think we have a good chunk of Fireside Church from Elizabethtown with us. We're glad to have you. This is one of our Emmanuel Network partners, and we're delighted you came up uh, for the evening. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To many, these will be familiar verses, and what a joy it would be to me, if they're not, to be able to read to you what I hope will become very familiar verses to you in your life. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, record the immediate birth of the Son of God. They tell us the story most immediately of the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house, and he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, You did a great thing when You brought Jesus into the world. We pray You'd bring, do a great thing now and shine light into our dark hearts and reignite light where it feels it's dimming. Lord, we pray that You would amplify Your light in our hearts by showing us Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. We've just read the story of Jesus' birth. And I'd like to make a few simple observations. And my hope is that what we notice together will cause you uh, to adore God. And maybe even for the first time. The first and most obvious observation that I can make about this passage is that it's a true story. It's a true story. It does not begin like a fairy tale once upon a time. And it doesn't begin like science fiction a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But it begins by placing us at a particular time in history. In those days. That's how it begins. In those days. And then it tells us who was ruling back then. It's not content to say this was a long time ago in the past, but it was specifically at a pinpointable time in the past. 
It happened in the days of Caesar Augustus, who was ruling the whole Roman Empire. That's the same Roman Empire you learned about in school or failed to learn about in school. And Quirinius was governor of the little region of Syria. You can still find Syria on a map today. The registration Luke talks about is what we would call a census. It's quite amazing. Most of the verses dealing with Jesus' birth are preoccupied with the details of a global census. A particular census that's confirmed actually in two other ancient documents. First book, first is in Acts 5.37, mentions the same census. And then in a history book called The Antiquities of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, this census that we just read about comes up again. Not only are the times concrete and historical, but they are tied to literal places. The story doesn't happen in Middle Earth or Narnia. It happens in the city of Rome. It begins with a couple traveling from northern Israel in Nazareth, and then ends in southern Israel in a place called Bethlehem. All places you could find on a map. You could even Google search, though I'd prefer you do it after I'm done the sermon. It is clear that the author of this story wants us to read what he's writing as real history, as a true story. Over the years, many have claimed that the Gospels, that's where we get Jesus' life and death and resurrection, many have claimed over the years that these are myths. They are no different from the gods of Roman mythology or Norse mythology. In fact, many times the people who claim the Gospel writing are myths are actually so-called Bible scholars. Is that true? Are these myths? I have found that many children, actually, who grew up in Christian homes, many, Christian, many kids who grew up in Christian homes who sit in on a million Christmas services, actually have this kind of idea that maybe, you know, the same way that Roman kids believed Roman myths and Norwegian kids believed North myths, Norse myths, Christian kids believe the Christian myths. Are these just myths? Or are they actually true stories? I've always loved the answer that C.S. Lewis gave to that concern. Lewis is most famous today as the author of the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But he needs to be remembered that before that, he was an author and a literature scholar. As a boy, he read Roman and Norse mythology. And he studied literature at Oxford before he went on to teach literature at Oxford. And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote about the idea that the Gospels are myths. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. So if someone tells me that something in a Gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read. How well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor not how many years he has spent studying the Gospels. Lewis's argument was basically this. Maybe there's some guys who read their Bible so much that they develop the idea that these are myths, but anyone who's actually read myths and then reads the Gospels isn't confused that the two might be the same. Why don't I just read you a few verses from Luke chapter 1, and you tell me if Luke is trying to set things up to make you aware of the great mythological character of what he's writing. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative 
of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for the most excellent Theoph- for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. If Luke was a, college, a modern college student, he's basically saying, all my footnotes are in order. I've consulted all the primary sources. I haven't just sort of come up with this one on my own and thought, have I got a story I can tell them about Jesus? Rather, he's telling us that he spoke to the eyewitnesses. He consulted the original sources. And then he actually was careful to compile things in an orderly account. Why? So that you could have confidence, even this evening, so that you could have confidence that these things really are so. So this is a true story. I was getting my hair cut a week or two ago and uh, trying to share the gospel with a lady who was cutting my hair. And as I was telling her about uh, uh, judgment and salvation and all these things, uh, she wasn't missing a beat and I was getting an easy 11-minute haircut. And she was, and the whole time she's like, oh yeah, totally, 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 totally. And you could just tell she didn't believe a word I was saying. And I just want to encourage you, make sure you don't listen to this and say totally, 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 totally. And not recognize the full weight of what I'm saying. This is a true story. It's not only a true story, but here's my second point. It's a God story. This is a story of God ruling over human history. But listen to this. This doesn't sound like a story where God is ruling all over all of human history. It's not what it sounds like. It doesn't, it doesn't read like God's in charge. It starts with a very human decree in those days. A decree went out. Not from God's throne, but from Caesar's throne. Now what Caesar commanded was that everyone go to their hometown to be registered. It was a, basically a giant census to make sure that Caesar was getting all the tax money he was owed. And as with most government decrees that come from hundreds of miles away, this one was super inconvenient for the little guy. For Joseph and Mary, this means they had to embark on a journey of at least 85 to 90 miles. Now that's nothing when you can go something close to that in your car. But if you're on foot or on a donkey, that's something like 4 to 10 days. And it's 4 to 10 days with a very pregnant woman. And if you've ever been a pregnant woman or traveled with a pregnant woman, you know that there is a lot of stopping. Anyway, Joseph and Mary are on a trip they probably would not have planned because a human king had issued his royal decree. One rabbit trail I can't resist. Pointed out to me this week by one commentator, and I just thought this was fascinating. We often think about how inconvenient it would have been for Mary to have to travel that pregnant we may be forgetting that it may have been a mercy for Mary to get out of the town. There was so much shame for her in. And to get away to a place where she was a stranger and to give birth to this child unmolested. It's a God story. It looks like Caesar's in charge. 
It looks like His decree is running the day. It looks like people are just sort of having to respond to the chaos that the government officials have brought down on their heads by royal edict. But as you keep reading, we get a clue that God is working out something bigger than just gathering taxes to balance the Roman budget. You see, the place that Mary and Joseph had to go to register was a hot spot of biblical activity and prophecy. Our passage highlights this when in verse 4 it says, And in when Joseph, and when Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, what's being said there? What's being said here is the town he went to was the hometown of arguably Israel's greatest king. But on top of that, more importantly than David being Israel's greatest king, David was a king that God had made an unbelievable promise to. I think it was Nicolene who read it to us. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This king was being promised that someone from his lineage would rule forever. The man who Bethlehem, Bethlehem was his hometown, was promised he would have a son that would rule forever. And then, in the book of Micah, like 500 years or more, before we just read in Luke chapter 2, in Micah it says, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're just this tiny little place. You're the middle of nowhere. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Let me put this together as clearly as I can. As far as I can tell, Caesar Augustus never heard the names Mary and Joseph in his entire life. He never gave them a second thought. He never gave them a first thought. He just decreed his decree and went about his day. But the result of that decree was that Joseph, a descendant of King David, was now taking his wife to Bethlehem, the city of David, to give birth who would fulfill the promise given to David. Mary and Joseph were not pawns in Caesar's world. Caesar Augustus was a pawn in God's world, moving everything to accomplish the advancement of His kingdom and the enthronement of His king. I will tell you, after 25 years or so of studying the Bible, nothing screams the reality of God to me more than the interconnectedness of this book than its ability to predict in one place and to perfectly accomplish in another. I just read it week by week by week and keep coming away going, there is a God. And He has written this book. This is the way God works in human history. He decrees what will happen, but He accomplishes what will happen through the free choices of men and women. If you can handle a little English, a little old English from the 1800s, then here's the way our church doctrinal statement puts it. God, from eternity past, from eternity, decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures in all events, yet so as not in any wise or any way 
to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. In other words, God decrees everything, but in no way does He become the author or approver of sin, nor does He ever make people robots. He sovereignly incorporates our free choices into accomplishing His determined decree. He can even take evil or indifferent choices and, and cause them to work out His plan. You've got to think about this. God is like a martial artist. What do really good martial artists do? They take the weight and the energy coming at them in attack and they use it against their opponent to accomplish what they wanted to see happen in the fight. God is like a great musical composer who can hear a note, a, a number of notes all in discord and add the one note that makes them all sound in perfect harmony. He's like the computer programmer who can have someone trying to hack his plan and he's able to incorporate the hacking code into a better code to trump the hackers. He's sovereignly able to override and overrule and even work through the decrees of people to accomplish His decree. There's great comfort that comes from living under a God like that. Anyone feel like uh, we're in the chaotic year that will never end? I feel like we're entering 2020 around three. But we know that as decrees we may not agree with, government intrusion comes into our lives, we know that it never stops accomplishing God's perfect will. When the Chinese government kicked the Christian missionaries out of their country in the 1960s, they meant it for evil. But guess what? The Chinese Christians multiplied massively and the missionaries who left China went to Indonesia and began a great work there. In 2008-2009, many of you will remember the economy was in shambles, especially the automotive industry. And that led Ford to offer James Bufkin a position in Louisville, Kentucky. Probably just seemed like a hiccup in life at the time. A Detroit native lost a son. We gained a pastor. Many of the adopted children in this room would not be here if it was not for the infertility of their parents. God rules over all of history. Always working for the advance of His kingdom. Always working out sovereignly through the decisions and decrees of men. And one, just one thing I'll say to you about that before I move on. You may be in a place in your life where you feel like you're leaving God. Or maybe you've gained your freedom from God. You've gotten free from those arcane ideas. You need to know that that freedom you've acquired is actually God sovereignly handing you over only to accomplish His perfect will. And it will be accomplished. You will either glorify Him as He judges you for all of eternity, or you may yet come back out of your rebellion and find Him to be a perfect Savior and glorify Him as He saves you after so much folly and rebellion. Well, we've said this is a true story. We've said this is a God story. 
Let's wrap things up and say this is a Jesus story. Jesus does not have any lines in these seven verses. He wasn't able to handle a speaking part at this time. But he's clearly the spotlight. He is the descendant of David who will be born in Bethlehem. He is the one Matthew calls God with us. He's the one the angel told Mary to name Jesus because Jesus literally means Jehovah saves. I think God was trying to say something. You know, sometimes you meet parents, they tell you their kid's name, and you're like, what are you trying to get across? Well, God has made it very clear. He named His Son, I save. Jehovah saves. He is the one the angel said. This is in Luke chapter 1. The angel said He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God gave Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. This story is about God, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth as a man to be the King and Savior we have always needed but never found. In fact, it's about Jesus becoming the King and Savior we were not even looking for. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying humanity has never looked for a King and a Savior. They have. The Jews were looking for a military conqueror who would ride a white horse, wield a sharp sword, and smash the skulls of the Romans who oppressed them. They wanted a King and a Savior all right. People always have. That desire is still alive today. Every four years, Americans listen to presidential hopefuls, pretend to be something we all know they are not, and they promise to do things we all know they can't, and then we act surprised when they exercise power like it's all gone to their heads. We want a political and powerful king and savior. But Jesus came to be a different kind of leader. If you're a guy who's into biblical manhood, listen to me. Jesus came to be a different kind of leader. A servant leader. A foot-washing Savior. A sacrificial King. And His birth really was a sign of things to come. If you look at His birth, you actually get an accurate preview of the entire life. He was born to a poor couple. Later in Luke's Gospel, when they go to offer a sacrifice, they basically have to order off the value meal. There was a sacrifice you could offer of a bird if you couldn't afford a real lamb or a goat. And that's what they opted for. They were a poor couple. And then on top of that, he wound up wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. We don't know how much about the inn? Was it simply a room for rent or a seedy hotel or a motel kind of a thing? We don't exactly know. But we do know that whatever it was, there was no room in it for them to get a private room to give birth to a child. It did not have a nursery with a day bed for dad to sleep on. It did not have any room for them. And so it seems they gave birth out in the barn or the cave where the animals were. And wherever the manger the animals ate of was, that's where they laid the Son of God. You know, it's amazing. A number of years ago, Salman Rushdie wrote a novel that insulted Muhammad. To this very day, Muslims want him dead. 
And a while back, an artist produced a work of art called Piss Christ, where he actually urinated on the Son of God's representation. There was no Christians calling for the artist to be killed. Why? It goes right down to the kind of God we serve. He embraces shame. He's not a God whose honor is put out easily and whose nose is put out a joint easily and He wants to kill anyone who ever puts Him down. He's way more secure in His own glory than that. He's one who came born in a manger. He's one who died on a cross. His life would play out along consistent lines like these. He was not a king who did what most kings do, which is what? Made himself an exception to the rules. But he was one who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you are someone who wields authority, has that authority made you laxer and laxer with the rules other people are under? That's the opposite of the Spirit of Jesus. He came under the same rules He put others under and obeyed them perfectly. He was not a king who got grapes dropped in his mouth. No, the Son of Man had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was not the king who spent his time hobnobbing with rich and powerful people. His family were poor. His best friends were commoners. His disciples were blue-collar fishermen. He died strung up between two thieves. He was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Are you gunning to be friends with more and more influential people? Or is Christmas driving you low? Like your Savior. He would spend time with the rich, to be sure, but never to flatter them. Only to tell them the truth in love and often to knock them down a rung or two. He was that kind of king. He was not the kind of king who would keep people in awe, keep people at distance with pomp and circumstance. No, he called people close and wooed them with his humility. He said, come to me, all you are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm humble. And you will find rest for, my soul, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Humble servant-hearted, sacrificial, obedient lordship. That's King Jesus. He stamped his life with that in a manger. And he lived it out right to death on a cross. I wonder if this humility... Now listen to me. Please, please, please listen to me. I know there's presence under the tree. We already had to send one member of our family back to make sure the burner wasn't on. I know what tonight's like. Listen to me. I wonder if this humility might make approaching Him attractive to you. We are, as you may know, in a terrible situation. We are failures, sinners, Rebels against God. We have lived life by our own rules. Gone our own way. And our sin gets us into plenty of tangled messes in this world and has destined us for judgment, hell, 
and torment in the next. But what makes our problem, listen to me, worse is that the same pride that drives us to sin more and more also keeps us from admitting we're sinners. The same pride that gets us into trouble is the same pride that holds us back from ever looking for help to get out of the trouble we're clearly in. We know in our heart of hearts that we have disobeyed God's decrees, His laws, His commands. We know in our heart of hearts that we are under His judgment and we await His wrath. And yet He has condescended to come and save us. He has given us a record of His coming that is reliable and believable. He has orchestrated all of human history to bring His Son into the world to save us. And He's come so approachably. Not with burning eyes of fire ready to destroy us, but in a manger, as a foot washer, as a servant, as a humble teacher with a lowly heart to live for us and die on a cross to pay for our sins. Won't you come to Him? It's the most pleasant crushing of pride you will ever know. Won't you receive Him as the great gift of Christmas? A Savior for your sins? And brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not let this season go by without stopping to stare. Stopping to wonder. Stopping to adore. As the old hymn writer wrote, Oh come, let us adore Him. What's the most significant thing you could do in 2022? What's the most life-changing thing you could ever do? Adore Jesus. It changes everything. In a world that feels controlled by government bureaucrats who can't do everything, who do everything except tax and regulate, who constantly tax and regulate our lives, in a world of proud sin that will not be humbled, He has come right on time, right to where He said He would be, despite the sins of men, He has come to approach us humbly with His salvation. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You so much for sending us a Savior. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for gathering this body of Christians, this group of people, to this night to adore Him. We pray that His truth would resonate and rejoice our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.